Hello, my lovers, my puppies, my kittens, my schmoopies. Hi. This episode is or will be released right around Valentine's Day. Happens to be Black History Month as well. We're not unpacking Black history because you are bombarded by it right now in social media. And if you listen to this years from now, months from now, weeks from now, it doesn't matter. The fact is, it is the season of love. Although I say love should be around at all times on a daily. But at this time, we have Valentine's Day breathing down our necks. And I thought, you know, I know most of you, most of us are single and looking and avails. And even if we're not, we can always do better and be better. And I thought, what a great thing to do is to have guests on to unpack certain traits that help enrich our relationships. So for the next couple of episodes, we're going to unpack attachment theory and narcissism and anything else that may come up. But this one is about, spoiler alert, have you met someone who seems to be extremely self-focused, has an inflated sense of self, a strong desire for recognition and praise? We're talking about an overt narcissist. There are also covert narcissists, antagonistic narcissism, communal narcissism. Oh, and my favorite and also scariest and most dangerous, the malignant narcissist, whom it's a term you may have encountered if you've been listening for a long time. We had a beautiful uh, episode with the lovely Kate Romero, who shared her horror, horror buying experience with a malignant narcissist. So there's that. So please go back to that episode. I believe it's episode four. <laughs> yeah. 72 episodes ago. We circle back. So outgoing, arrogant, entitled, overbearing, having an exaggerated self-image, needing to be praised and admired, exploitative, competitive, lacking empathy. Then we have people who express low self-esteem. And then later on, you find out, no, they don't really have a low self-esteem. Higher likelihood of experiencing anxiety, depression, and shame. Introvert, insecurity, low confidence, defensiveness, avoidance. Tendency to feel or play the victim. I I have a very personal story with this particular type of narcissist a covert narcissist who at first seems to be the victim. The world is against her. All you want to do is rescue them. And then you come to, when they flip the script on you, woo, watch out. (laughs) Arrogance, tendency to take advantage of others, tendency to compete with others, disagreeability or proneness to arguing. Then we have those who are, who become easily morally outraged. They describe themselves as empathetic and generous when they are not, react strongly to things they see as unfair. Then we have the vindictive type, sadist, getting enjoyment from the pain of others, aggression when interacting with other people, paranoia or a heightened sense, worry about potential threats, my goodness. So I guess what I'm saying or asking is, 
What the fuckery is narcissism? about to find out. I am Nadej August, your host. I am still Nadej August. <laughs> if this is your first time, welcome. And here's what you can expect. What the Fockery is a podcast about the things we hear about but don't know enough about, such as this topic today. Uh, early and uh, disclaimer here. So my guest is a psychoanalyst. So that'll be the approach but in psychotherapy, uh, no, not psychotherapy, in psychology, narcissism is described slightly differently from the way he does or he will. Spoiler alert, it is a he. What the Fockery is a series of conversations dedicated to hearing firsthand from the very people whose lifestyle, truths, experiences, or concepts we struggle with understanding. The very things we should know about but are afraid to discuss our subjects and topics may or may not be mainstream, but our guests and sometimes experts, which in this case he is, are in it, living their truth, whether we accept them or not. And if in that process we manage to bring clarity to you, dear listener, then thank you for being curious, open, and willing. In that vein today, my guest is Liam McAuliffe, MTS. He's a psychotherapist and a coach. Drawing on two decades of meditation practice, a master's degree in existential anthropology from Harvard Divinity School, an advanced training in depth psychology at Pacifica Graduate Institutes, Liam McAuliffe counsels couples and individuals on a liberating journey of self-discovery. Liam practices psychotherapy at Liberation Institute, which is a nonprofit community health center in San Francisco, California, and he coaches individuals and clients at his private practice in Venice, California. Listeners, puppies, kittens, schmoopies, I need you to visit our sponsors. We have BetterHelp, Fockery10 discount code, Vistro for your vegan foods or meals, plant-based meals, if that's your shtick and you want to try that for a little bit, and uh, peak tea. Now, without further ado, let us like mm, delve into this conversation that can go on for a while because there are many types of narcissists out there, including it might be you and there's nothing wrong with that. The key is awareness and self-awareness. And should you choose to change as a result, please do. Should you be in a relationship with a narcissist, ooh, you may want to um, buckle up because this one will be a bumpy ride. Without further ado, let us welcome Liam McAuliffe. Hi, Liam. <laughs> what the fuckery is narcissism? Narcissism is the development and maintenance of self-image and self-esteem. What? Yeah, not what you expected, right? 
No, because everyone is accusing everyone who appears to be selfish of narcissism. Mm-hmm. So your definition is, is it the textbook version or the psychological guides as to what? Sure. Yeah. It's the, it's the psychodynamic version. It's a psychological version. Yeah. Okay. How does one spot a narcissist? I think one could probably look in the mirror. I think we all have narcissistic kind of frequencies that we can tap into. It's an, it's whenever we go into an illusion, whenever we retreat into a story about our life an idealization, um, when we kind of talk ourselves up to our, when we talk to ourselves in a way where we bring ourselves up and we know it doesn't necessarily align with our experience of reality, but it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a defensive pattern, but it's also an adaptive trait. Why has narcissism taken such a forefront in our society over the last, I'd say, four to five years? Yeah, well, if we think of narcissism as this kind of innate ability to live within an illusion, and we look at what's happening with social media, with us living our lives online, especially during the pandemic years, um, you really sense that frequency of everybody is expressing kind of an illusory story of who they are to everyone else. And, and then there's also the kind of general feeling among at least half the country that we have been led by a raging narcissist. Um, And there's that thing that came out with a number of psychologists saying that he has narcissistic personality disorder. Um, So I think, for those reasons, it's a real strong current within popular culture. So what is narcissistic disorder? Right. So that would be these different narcissistic tendencies, but overexpressed, right? It becomes the person's main and sometimes only characterological kind of makeup. Um, so if we were to like refer to the DSM, which is, you know, the the Bible of mental pathologies, um, psychological pathologies, it'd be someone who is, you know, has a grandiose sense of self-importance, is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, ideal love, um, believes that they are special and unique and can only associate with other people who are equally special and unique. Um, They require excessive imagination they have a sense of entitlement and unreasonable expectations that they they deserve to get all of their needs met. Um, they're interpersonally exploitative, so they take advantage of other people, um, all to serve their own ends, all in a certain way to uh, bolster and support the illusion they have of themselves. They need other people's juice. They need their life force to keep this illusion going. Um, and finally, they lack empathy. So these are the seven criteria that, you know, if they're generally kind of consistently expressed would, you know, allow a psychologist to diagnose someone as having narcissistic personality disorder. Lack of empathy is huge. How is a narcissist or narcissism different from being selfish? In my opinion, I feel that we all have moments where we need to be selfish because we have to take care of ourselves. 
But then there are times we accuse other people of being selfish because they refuse to bend. So I'm just trying to figure out what is the clinical difference, I guess, for both. Yeah, I would say, you know, selfishness in a certain way is related to narcissism, but narcissism is really about illusion, right? And you can say someone is selfish when they can't get out of their illusion or when they refuse to leave their illusion in order to make a real contact with you, right? That's when narcissism can feel selfish. When someone is, when a narcissist is using you, that feels really selfish. But also, you know, these different characterological traits, like for someone who's histrionic, for instance, who like needs love in order to feel whole, they can also feel selfish. They're not necessarily living in an illusion of being better than everyone else, but they are, can also use these kind of manipulative um, dynamics uh, to get their needs met in a, in a way that can feel selfish. So, I mean, selfishness is kind of like this really primitive kind of mm, part of the human psyche that can express in these different kind of characterological traits like narcissism. I have heard people refer to, for instance, I, I had a guest on really early on who was stalked by an ex and she referred to him as a malignant narcissist. And I've mm-hmm. seen come across that term before. How is this level of narcissism different than your basic narcissist? What is a malignant narcissist? Like? Yeah, well, so that would be someone who probably has narcissistic personality disorder. It's someone whose narcissism verges almost on sociopathy, right? Which is a complete inability to um, experience empathy. Sometimes narcissists can get to empathy but they have to shut it down, right? They, they can't tolerate actual connection because it brings up the sense of how much they're actually lacking in connection, right? It, it brings up this, this sense of an abject poverty of an internal, um, internal goodness or internal attunement. But so, so and it's, it's tricky. So there's this, there's this kind of locking between people that have a histrionic personality and a narcissistic personality. And it can feel really malignant when someone who's histrionic, who's someone who like, for instance, it's like, if you just, you're, if you're like a plant in a pot and if you just poured water on me, I could blossom. Right. And the narcissist is someone who um, cannot give anybody else any nutrients. They suck up all the nutrients. So often these dynamics get kind of pulled together the, you know, the flower who needs the water and the, the narcissist who can't give any nutrients. And it can feel like the life force is just being sucked out of someone. And that, that can feel malignant, right? That can, that can essentially reactivate the, the kind of developmental wounds that would cause someone to feel like they need more love in the first place. And make someone live within that wound of not being enough or being rejected. Um, So in that way, like I I really see, you know, malignant narcissism as happening in a dynamic with a certain, you know, with with another person who has very specific personality traits, like someone who is, you know, less histrionic and maybe more depressive, meaning that they take things kind of really personally, right? Things that are, you know, shitty things that are happening 
in their dynamics, they say, oh, it's my fault. They might not be as kind of enthralled to a narcissist. There's a certain amount of empathy that you can get to when you say that's my fault. You're like, that's how that works. But for this, with this person, I see that they're, they're really not even here in this thing that in this dynamic, there's, there's nothing of them actually to internalize into myself. Um, and you can just see that they're not connected and, and, and not be as activated and just kind of not be as attracted to them. Um, so it's really about the different way the dynamics play together. Are there different degrees or classes of narcissists, different terms? So we've, we've just kind of covered malignant narcissism. Mm-hmm. What are some of the others? And if you can support them with examples. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure. I'd say that there's degrees of, of narcissistic traits that happen. I, I guess, you know, I, I just know that there's narcissistic personality disorder, but um, I don't know, you know, all of the dimensions or if there's more than that or, you know, and, and what would, would constitute one over the other. You counsel couples, right? I do. Do you ever come across one partner out of the two and you go, oh, classic narcissist? Well, it's interesting you ask that because really the only way that a narcissist is going to get into the therapy room is if his partner brings him in or her partner bring or his or he brings his partner in who's a woman. But, you know, as you see, it's often biased towards the man as the narcissist. Um, And I think there's a lot of cultural factors involved in that. Um, You see narcissistic traits come up. But. I don't know. Narcissists have notoriously avoided therapy. Part of being a narcissist is that you feel that you really don't need to rely on anybody else and you don't trust anybody else in the first place. You think you've got it. You've got everything covered. Um, It's a sense of, you know, false omnipotence. And uh, yeah, so they're, they're rarely in the therapy room, but when they are one way to detect them is that they're either always looking up or always looking down energetically in this way where you feel completely devalued. And if you're not devalued, you're either elevated into this, you know, this um, grandiose object that gives them that, that feeds their sense of grandiosity by being in relationship to you, or you're completely diminished. And then that's usually when the relationship's over because they cannot tolerate being associated with, someone who's not special. Interesting. Is narcissism curable? Curable. Curable. Yeah. Uh, I like to think that there's the potential for anyone to grow out of these kind of pervasive, protective um, strategies. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I'll just speak to my own kind of experience. Like I had some narcissistic models in my life and I, like, again, it's degrees. And for instance, being in group therapy really pointed out to me um, the ways in which I was unaware about how I was coming across, right? And the ways in which I had internalized kind of my own, you know, need for dominance and superiority. And 
to be in a space of vulnerability where those things can be addressed, but you're also held, you know, held by the other group members, held by the therapist, can be really liberating. Right? Really, I think what everybody wants is connection. And for narcissists, I think it's really, they don't trust that the connection is there that they want. It's not available to them. So this is my next question is twofold in a way. Can empathy be taught? Yes. If empathy can be taught, mm-hmm. can a narcissist be taught empathy? Yes. Good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so I think to answer this question, I think it's important to kind of think a little bit about where the narcissistic trait comes from. What are the core wounds, right? And there's like two main areas that narcissism comes out of. One is a failure of the holding environment, meaning the environment when you're an infant, you know, zero to 19 months, where you completely rely on your, usually your mother for survival or primary caretaker in general. Like in tribal societies, there's multiple caretakers. Um, but in our kind of nuclear society, it's generally just focused on the mom. Um, and for a child to have kind of like a healthy relationship to the ability to go into illusion, into imagination, this is one way of thinking about it. They need to feel omnipotent in that first year. They need to feel that the mother is intuiting their need for milk, intuiting their need for, you know, a change of temperature, they're cold, they need to be hot. And so in that way, the child is in this illusion of a completely subjective universe where, you know, their wish, their desire kind of magically manifests exactly what they need. And people who have like really intense experiences of narcissism as adults often didn't have a safe holding environment. They, they felt what they, they needed a lot more than they received. And they were essentially terrified of annihilation. And they didn't have, and this goes back to the discussion we had before on attachment and attachment theory. They didn't have that experience of safe attachment that would allow them to essentially look back at mom, trust that whatever they're reading from mom about reality is true. Okay. It's safe or there's threat out there and then go and explore. Instead, they have to carry this false sense of omnipotence with them out into the world. So that's like, that's the, the early, early developmental um, kind of formation of narcissism. And then it also, and, and people who are like less malignantly, malignantly narcissistic, people who have kind of just like maybe more expressed narcissistic tendencies, but also you can connect with them and just take some time for them to feel safe, things like that. Um, Their parents generally have narcissistic patterns. Their parents generally have, you know, grandiose illusions about themselves that defend against their own insecurities. And the child has to either live up to these grandiose ideals in order for the parent to accept them or they have to just really believe all of the kind of bullshit that the parents believe in order to be accepted by them. So that's where narcissism kind of comes from developmentally. And 
to cure narcissism would be to provide a, a compensatory, healthy holding environment where you actually, as a therapist, it would be really being with the client when they're expressing all of their illusions of grandiosity, knowing what's going on, having compassion, knowing that they're trapped in their own illusion. And what they really desire and really want is deep, intimate connection. It wasn't modeled to them. Essentially, it was stolen from them. And you're there to just hold that. And there's no guarantee that they're going to get to it. But if they feel your empathy and they feel your understanding, usually there's something that, you know, that kind of wakes up in them and kind of looks out and says, oh, is, is it actually safe to be out here in reality, in a shared reality that I don't have control over? Is this exposure okay? You know, is, is someone going to shame me for it? Because that's another thing about narcissism. It's an allergy to shame. Usually people who are narcissistic had extremely shaming parents, um, or critical parents. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Let's shift gear to more practical applications. Mm -hmm. We are adults in the dating world, dating scene. Most of us in Los Angeles are single. Um, and that comes up a lot. I hear many people say, yeah, I once dated a narcissist. I was once married to a narcissist. Is there a way as you're getting to know someone to look for, I guess, red flags? Are there things that narcissists tend to do that say, stop, stop, alert, alert? Is this what you really want? Watch out. Yeah, I think the first thing to do would be to look in yourself and say, am I feeling this person? Do I feel them feeling me? Is it, does it feel, do I feel like I'm even here? Right. The first thing, the first, I think the very first red flag is if I don't even feel like I'm here when I'm in front of this person, then there's a narcissistic part that is blended with them. So hang on a second here. You just said something very important because right away my mind flashed to certain situations. Someone who, for instance, you sit across from them and you're in a getting to know you stage, you just met, you're having perhaps a meal for the first time. And all they do is talk about themselves, but in colorful terms, in terms of grandiosity, to use your word. I'm so great. I'm so great. Never asking questions of you. No interest in who you are or even remembering something you might have said. You know, say, I don't know if you said uh, I had a sore throat two days ago and they, would they even think to say, are you better now? Mm -hmm. And or wait for an answer because there are those who ask it because they know it's the polite thing to do, but they just passed right it, pass through it. So, yeah. Would you agree that that's a sign? Maybe. Definitely. All of those sounds like expressions of narcissistic protection. Right. It's a very primary, primitive defense, too. Like we all have narcissism within us. And I think it's important to be, like I said, tell these stories that, you know, and, and value ourselves. But yeah, when you feel that you're not being valued by the person, you're not even being seen. Yeah, that, that's that's a narcissistic blend. The other thing is that it is scary, right, to suddenly show up in front of someone in real life after you know having a few like very curated kind of experiences on an app. And it makes sense that 
there would be these parts that blend, right? These protective parts and, you know, that you haven't really stepped off the app yet. And it takes a little bit of time to transition into real life and to notice that it's safe. So, you know, you could kind of give it a little time. One thing that would be interesting to try is to even just really say in the moment, are you really here? Are you feeling me? You know, and see what comes back. Often, like if someone is just has a narcissistic blend and you were to kind of ask them where they actually are and tell them that you're not really feeling them, that can actually call a part of themselves out, right? That, that likes to be outed. But if, if, it, if you're just met with like deeper walls or like a look of horror, if you see like, you know, the, the kind of like the child when it's surprised, it makes a face of, you know, like eyes bugging out. And like, a, you know, your neck's kind of like scrunched. If you see that, then, then you're seeing the wounded child that's running the show within them. And that might be more of a kind of a job in terms of building relationship than you want to deal with. A shock over a, a perceived criticism or yeah. rejection of some sort. Totally, yeah. Uh, here's a share. And I don't know that I can call this person a narcissist. So I'd be interested to hearing you what you think, because obviously you're hearing just my side of the story. Mm -hmm. I don't kiss on first dates. I don't even kiss on second dates. A third date, maybe. Then I feel like I have a sense of who you are, right? And a first date isn't just coffee for like 20 minutes and off we go. You know, we spend a good amount of time together. So met someone in real life, not you know, not through an app. So, and we had, uh, have a friend in common, which made it okay and safe to go further. Yeah. Uh, the person within, I would say half hour of sitting down, just lunges in for a kiss. And it was like, Whoa, <laughs> what are you doing, buddy? Uh, he was like, well, you were laughing. Oh, I didn't realize laughter was an invitation for something as personal as a kiss. You know, you're shoving your tongue down someone's throat. That's especially in these times. I mean, this is COVID, you know, there's that too. So regardless, uh, it went fine. Date number two, again. And finally, I just said, what, what cues? Am I giving you some kind of like hint that this is okay? And he just lost it. He said, I'm 45 years old and not once has a woman ever, not ever refused a kiss from me. Never mind twice. I'm done. He was furious and left. <laughs> it was, I thought, well, of course, goodbye to good riddance to bad porridge. But, you, you know, it was one of those moments of, wow, that rejection. Is this that person a narcissist or displays tendencies of a narcissist? Mm -hmm. I think it'd be accurate to say that those are narcissistic tendencies. Definitely. A narcissist generally will sexualize intimacy, right? And especially men, right? Who, who kind of derive a sense of control or power out of sexual expression. If there's intimacy there, they will kind of literally swallow it into sexuality. Um, that reminds me of, so one of my mentors said, you know, he experienced a narcissist. He was treating a man. And the man said, if you had tits, I would fuck you. To, to my mentor, to, who's a therapist, right? And how my mentor described that or, or you know, explained it is 
that intimacy was so threatening that he had to bring it into this really aggressive sexualized kind of experience. Um, so yeah, a guy trying to reach across the table and, you know, shove his tongue down your throat without any real cues. You can say that he's also living in his illusion, right? He saw something that wasn't there. Yeah. Hmm. Really interesting stuff. Uh, any more red flags you can think of? I just want to say, I wonder too, and perhaps your mentor would know because neither of us was there. If the, the 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 choice of wording, if you had tits, I would f you. Is that someone who may have a sexual? What do you call that? Uh, addiction, perhaps too. Could be. Right. Yeah, I think that these, you know, addictions, sexual, otherwise, generally come from woundings, right? It's the idea that there are wounds there that you don't want to feel, so you're going to do whatever you can not to feel it. Living in a narcissistic illusion, um, feeding them with, you know, sex that doesn't have more kind of emotional intimacy involved with it um, could be part and parcel. Alcoholics, people with addiction, specifically alcoholics, because that's who I've, I've been around them a lot. Mm. Um, I've often heard people say of parents who are alcoholics, my mother was such a narcissist. Is there a link to alcoholism and narcissists as well? Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And again, I think it has to do with an avoidance of reality an avoidance of pain, a need to live in an illusion. And yeah, it's, it's almost as simple as that. There's a wound and a pain that's intolerable. They haven't gotten the support they need to be able to go and be with that wound in a way. And so, yeah, you'll do whatever you can to kind of like put out those flames, right? Do narcissists want to be worshiped? Definitely. They need to be worshipped. They need your juice. So if you want to bag a narcissist, just worship them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess so. Just, just call it what it is. I want to get with this narcissist. Let's just worship them. I think of the uh, typical, the stereotypical Hollywood uh, movie star, right? Who is always often portrayed as being incredibly uh a narcissist, very opposite of self-effacement, and they need to be worshipped. Now, is there a different name for something like that? Someone who has a need to be worshipped? Mm, if there is, I don't know it. I know that like people that have kind of a histrionic kind of protection vibe um, also really appreciate being worshipped, and because it's it's basically um, healing the wound of abandonment. It's a need to build self-worth from other people's, you know, ad- adulation, admiration. Um, yeah, but the difference is that, you know, a, a histrionic will be really sweet and appreciative about it, whereas a narcissist will just take it for granted, not even see you worshiping, um, just expecting it to be there. Whereas, you know, someone who's histrionic needs to be worshipped. I think a lot of performers are histrionic, actually. Um yeah, and, and they'll be in genuine relationship to you as, you know, and they may, might even kind of like let you know that they're really kind of like feeding off your your energy. 
Um, flatterers. But in a sweet way. Yeah, flatterers. Yeah, exactly. Flatterers. Totally. Flatters, yeah. Um, I have a theory about how to handle a narcissist. Do you have one or is there one that, you know, is uh, recommended in the from the Bible of psychological? How to handle them. Yeah. Say more about what handling is for you. Oh, okay. I, it's not even like how to, so say you've been wounded mm-hmm. by a narcissist. Because usually a lot of people, at least in the beginning of their uh, uh, career in relationships beyond those of the family, tend to um, discover what they don't want, right? Uh So you may decide, oh my, I didn't realize I was with such a narcissist. Moving forward, there are ways they, there are tools or things you can do to deal with a narcissist. Mm-hmm. Punitive things. Okay. That's what I mean by handle. Vengeance. <laughs> Vengeance. Yeah. Um, do you want to hear what I what I do and I, I I've done and has worked wonderfully? Please. If a narcissist thrives on your uh, on the need for attention, the best thing to do is to not give it to them. And that's what I do with narcissists. I can ignore you and pretend that you are not even alive. I can sit on your lap and still pretend that you're not on the planet. That's how that's how clear I am about not giving you this 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 energetic suck mm-hmm. that you've got. Yeah. Right. Um, I had a former friend who she was clearly a narcissist and knew it too, diagnosed, understood that she was a raging alcoholic. We're talking about vodka from cheap vodka all day. It's really quite sad, but incapable of holding any relationships for a long time. Friends forget relationships that are intimate, right? But even friends, like a constant recycling of people leaving her life because they just can't can't deal with her. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I had someone call me and say, I don't know anyone who's known her for six months. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, yeah, that's about how long I knew her too. <laughs> but uh, this is someone who had said, I don't ever want to speak to you again. So block. Well, she found me on Facebook, sent me messages, blocked her there, never responding, just knowing that this is the best way to handle them. Would you believe that she ends up calling me from a different number? Just to, she just couldn't believe and fathom that someone was ignoring her. Although I was respecting your words, you said, I don't want to be your friend. That was easy for me. Great. Say no more. Well, yeah, I mean, that sounds that sounds like a good way to trigger their attachment wounds. Right. So originally they might have been, you know, this is this is kind of where these characterological traits like narcissism meets attachment. Right. You flipped her from essentially an avoidant dismissive into an anxious attacher. By withholding those nutrients. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the best way to handle a narcissist is to ignore them. Yeah. I mean, you you do see what happens when you ignore them, though. You almost get more attention and energy. In a certain way, you're getting back at them. Mm-hmm. But then again, I'm like, you know, wondering what it is to handle a narcissist. Okay. They hurt you. You're hurting them back. You're 
still enmeshed with a narcissist at that point. Yeah. And if, yeah. If you block them from your life, they find a way to come back in. You know, obviously I disengaged, but not even giving them the time to argue back and forth and just, and get, so that to me, it's not even punitive. It is more just saying, making it clear. I am no longer, it's boundaries, right? I am no longer giving you what you think you need. And yeah. knowing that fighting with you is what you thrive on, is what gives you power, baby. No, 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 not happening. Not for me. Yeah. Firm boundaries. And it sounds like that's really affirming for you to give those boundaries, right? When you were in this thing where energy was being taken from you in a fight and yeah. And you can't control what a narcissist does when you make your boundaries. That's true. Um, and, you know, I'll say this, my friend who's a colleague that I do um, consultation with, she was talking to someone about narcissism and the message was um, narcissists will happen to you. <laughs> it's not your fault. <laughs> it's really, really easy to get entangled with a narcissist or when you get entangled, it's really hard to disentangle. And it's something that happens to you. It's like, it's like getting hit with a, you know, a comet or something like that. And like you said, you know, you made your boundaries and she still found a way to get back into your life. Mm -hmm. At least tried. She tried. quite Keep. found her way in. Thank you, Apple, for creating a phone that has the ability to block people <laughs> and social media. So yeah. that helps a lot. Um. Wow. Anything else that we can uncover that you want to share about narcissism? Because I am otherwise quite satisfied with this discussion. Sure. Yeah. A couple of things. So just how, for instance, how a clinician, like how I have been taught to go into a session where I think there's a narcissist is to take all of your self-worth, self all of your self-esteem, put it in a box, lock it up and send it to the next city over and come back to that after the session because they will do whatever they can to diminish you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So similar to, you know, making these boundaries and, and, and your friend dynamic. Um, one other thing that could be helpful to bring in is, you know, the origin of narcissism, where it came from the Greek myth. Narcissists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, narcissist. yeah, it's narcissist and echo. And it's interesting that this myth tells the story of the histrionic narcissist kind of lock as well. So qu quickly, um, Zeus is in the forest. He's gallivanting with these nymphs. Hera, his wife, gets angry, comes looking for him. This one nymph named Echo comes and basically like blocks Hera, talks her ear off so the other nymphs can scatter, charms Hera, um, and, and Zeus runs away. And, but eventually Hera catches on to what Echo has been doing. She's okay. She's got this like golden tongue. She can be really manipulative. Um, and so what she does is she takes away her ability to speak and she can only repeat the last words that someone said, hence Echo. So Echo is this forest nymph. And in this forest, there's this beautiful young man named Narcissus and he's a hunter and he's wandering around this forest. And he, he kind of calls out for, I think he, he catches a glimpse of, of 
um, echo. And then he calls out for us. Let me see you. Let me see you. And then narcissist or echo comes back in and literally wraps her arms around uh, narcissist and says, let me see you. Let me see you. And she feel, and he feels smothered. Right. So, and he says, I'd rather die before I love you. And Echo repeats, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, and just smothers him even more. And he just casts her away. And so she goes and has to go, like, live in this lonely cave. And then he goes and um, continues hunting. And then he comes upon this reflective pool, you know, that's as still as a mirror. And he looks into this pool, and he's so beautiful that he just falls right in love with himself. (laughs) And... That's how he spends the rest of his life is looking into love the with himself in love with himself. And he dies that way. And Echo, who, you know, has been deprived of love, who has been rejected, which is, you know, that's the wound that creates the histrionic personality disorder, also dies alone, could never fully express her actual feelings. Yeah, these Greek mythologies have such beautiful ways of pretty much capturing the those terms that we now use, those personalities. And of course, they came first. So who whoever the psychologist was that started to uh, grab these these uh, myths and making them uh, names for these behavioral I guess, illnesses or not, uh, really was spot on. Because it's almost as if, I guess, it's two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, you have someone who loves so much and too much and has never, that sound echo. She doesn't get to uh, express her love forbidden mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. so. And then you have narcissist who's just so in love with themselves that once they got what they wanted, let me see, let me see you. Someone goes, yes, here I am. They I, I want nothing to do with you. You've given me what I wanted. I want nothing to do with you. So it's twofold because in a sense, it sounds to me like if that is true, if we're keeping with that mythology also, it would appear that a uh, a narcissist enjoys the chase way more than the catch. Yeah, totally. Because what is the catch, right? What would be the catch and why is it so terrifying? Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense? Do you have a, an answer for you in that? N- not for me, but I, I can guess it's it's getting what you want, but the thrill is not in the actual object of your desire and your want. The thrill is the chase. Mm-hmm. That's the driving force. That's what gets you out of bed. That's what motivates you. Definitely. And then I would ask, you know, okay, there's the chase, but what are they chasing? And why is it so scary when they get close to it? Right. And that, you know, the way that I understand it is that they're chasing connection, but they don't trust connection because it's hurt them so much before. Vulnerability is scary. Vulnerability Vulnerability is really scary. Being seen is really scary. Looking out of your own delusion is really scary, especially when it's been so supportive for so many narcissists, you know, in a certain way. I mean, look at how far narcissism gets you in society these days, right? We live in a real narcissistic cycle of society. One other thing about narcissism and society that I think is an interesting connection is there is a study done of um, art 
and how art changes in terms of social a, a society's development. And when societies are really close to collapse, most art has people's faces looking directly out of the canvas or directly out of the screen. And when societies have, um, you know, are, are healthier, for instance, more whole, more vital, there's more profiles. There's more focus on, for instance, eyelids. And if you want to actually like feel, feel a little bit of resonance with another human being, don't watch their eyes, watch their eyelids. There's something so human, so vulnerable. Really? So what is it about their eyelids that we should look for? That they're downcast, upcast, straight on? It's just, just the fact of them. You know, it's, there's something you're, you're seeing the person and maybe not your reflection or, you know, it's, it's in a certain way, looking directly at someone in the eyes is actually threatening. You know, if you think of, you know, other mammals, they rarely do it. Um, most affection is done, you know, through brushing and, you know, brushing against each other and these kind of sidelong ways of making connection. Um, and I think there's something about, it, it reduces when we don't look directly at someone in the eyes, it reduces our own kind of defensive shields. And so we can actually see them because otherwise in a certain way, we're seeing ourselves, we're, we're experiencing ourselves in defense. Um, so that's kind of like one way to kind of short circuit your own narcissistic um, defenses. Yeah. So interesting. I, when I look in someone's eye, I lose my train of thought. I'm incapable to, which is why I look away in order to remember what it is I'm trying to say. Uh-huh. Is that is that normal? Is something wrong with me? Yeah, you're you're hopeless. You should probably you know check yourself into an institution as soon as possible. Get some medication. No, I think it's really common. I think eye contact's really kind of scary for a lot of people. Um, but then you know, then there are these like really interesting kind of programs where you you just make really deep eye contact in a safe way but before you do that and and that's the thing is before you go there you establish boundaries and you establish your no Um, it's really important to feel safe saying i don't want this right now and then that's what allows you actually to go for it This episode will be released right around Valentine's Day, where there's so much pressure mm. to be, do, and have someone <laughs> be, do, mm-hmm. and do them <laughs> and be done mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> in that way. I wonder if there are any um, advice you can give to people who are newly coupling up whether it's what to watch out for uh, if someone's a narcissist or, or how vulnerable one should be early on, or is it true that uh, men typically still enjoy the chase more than the catch? Like, I don't know, some kind of pearls of wisdom. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is tune into yourself, right? Can you tune into yourself? Do you have a way of checking in? With yourself. What do you look for when you tune in with yourself? You get to see, you know, what, what do you ask yourself when you're tuning in? So I guess in a certain way, you know, am I feeling calm? Am I feeling 
safe? Am I feeling, you know, is, am I feeling excited or am I feeling scared? And just really kind of like acknowledging the different frequencies of emotion that are present. And that's a way to kind of actually calm them down. There's this, you know, this saying called name it to tame it. But I, I like to change that a little bit and, and to name it, to get into relationship to it. We're not trying to necessarily tame these parts of ourselves. They're all there. They're all really good at tuning in their job. reality. They're doing their job totally. And we want to help them And a way to help these parts of ourselves, these parts that feel defensive, do their job. So they're not so frantic and, and they, so they don't overwhelm us and blend with us is to really just kind of tune in and say, wow, I, I see you there fear. Like I feel you as this, you know, this tension on the back of my neck. Um, I feel you as a slight tremble in my chest. Um, I'm just going to be here for, you know, a minute or two. Um, and then that will allow you to actually see more clearly what's going on in front of you in terms of your dynamic with the other person. Right. And I mean, it doesn't even have to be a minute or two. You can just check in when you're in the space with the other person. Um, also just being really vulnerable. If that's your thing, if you're, if you're safe and if vulnerability is something you've practiced and that's important to you, you know, why, why keep that in the bag? Why not just bring it into the situation to see if the other person's going to meet you there. And even if they can't meet you there then, and they're intrigued by it, then that's a good sign. You know, not everyone's going to be at the same place in terms of, you know, even the access to kind of psychological work that they've had, you know, like, and, and also your job's not to be, you know, the other partner's psychologist, but you can model the kind of vulnerability and connection that you want and deserve. I wonder too, if the trick isn't, and this is what I try to do, and it's hard, it's vulnerability sons attachment to the results. Uh It's scary enough to be vulnerable. And if you have expectations as to what will happen once you have you've revealed yourself, you might be might be a recipe for disaster. And that's the hard part because you're like, I showed, I gave, I bought, and mm, and uh, that means you you had expectations. Yeah, then it's not true vulnerability. Then it's kind of you know using vulnerability as a kind of attachment tool or manipulation tool, and that's totally fine and normal. But that's the thing, true vulnerability, the reason why it's actually the ultimate strength is because you've given up being attached to the, the outcome, right? It's really what you're getting from being vulnerable is an experience of your own strength and a deeper connection to yourself. Um, and it also sucks and hurts at the same time. You can have that experience and be hurt by being rejected, right? Like, or, or not being met there. It fucking hurts not to be met when you really expose yourself. And that's just part of being vulnerable. Right. And I wish there was a way to, to know whether (laughs) you, the person that you are being vulnerable with, uh, will receive it in the, the, uh, in the mind frame, you, your intentions were in. Yeah. Does that make sense? Totally. You can't control what another human being feels or does, right? Definitely. And I mean, that's often why we often, if we're, if we're going to say something vulnerable, we often preface it with, this is uncomfortable, or, you know, I'm not sure how this is going to land. Like we're already bracing ourselves for that judgment. We don't know. 
And yeah, and I, I think, it, again, it's just getting, I don't know if you can ever get comfortable with it, but getting to a place where you can be with the pain and the freedom at the same time. I have been on this authenticity kick mm. and it's a practice. It's ongoing. And what I've come to realize is if these last two years has taught us anything, have taught us anything, I'd rather, is that life's too short to hold back. And if I feel what I feel right now, I want to just go on that ride, whatever that is. And, you know, I've been known to say, I'm not going to promise that this is forever, but in this moment, right here, right now, I am in love with you. Mm-hmm. And even prefacing by telling someone, uh, tomorrow, that might be different, but right in this moment, this is where I am. This is what I'm feeling. I don't know how authentic it is that I'm even prefacing it with a disclaimer, but it's also my truth. I acknowledge that, you know, you've ever been in in a situation when you're like, wow, we were so in love in the beginning. What happened? How did it get so bad? How did it get so ugly? So, yeah. Yeah. So what are you, what are you saying in that moment when you're saying right now, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but right now I'm really in love with you. What do you, what do you feel like you're expressing or what are you giving voice to there? A a feeling of um, comfort and connection and safety, comfort, connection, and safety in that moment. Yeah. But the next day, the person may do something that no longer makes me feel safe. Mm-hmm. Then they might say, but I thought you loved me or you were in love with me. And I go, well, not anymore. You just scared the bejesus out of me. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all a work in progress. But ultimately, I would encourage everyone. I've lost so many people. I know people who are as young as I am who have transitioned, not through COVID, just overnight. Shock. Shocking. So many people are leaving. I've buried a lot of people. And you remember how we mentioned regret for me was the one feeling I don't want. That's where that's born too, out of that whole thing. And I'm taking it a step further now, not just not having regret of not having said what I needed to say, but also playing a game where I'm protecting my heart so much and my ego that I'm not going to let you know how I feel about you. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you decide to shit all over it, that's your problem. That's on you, buddy, not me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, my advice for Valentine's. (laughs) Beautiful advice. (laughs) Just do you. Listen, Liam, how can my audience find you if they hear you and they think, you know, I would like to work with this gentleman. He sounds like he and I might be a good fit for counseling. Mm-hmm. What are your specialties? You have a specific area. And also I will have links to you in the show notes as always to refer them to wherever you tell me. But if you want to just say it for someone who's driving while listening. Sure. To yeah. So you can find me at Liam at being with dot space. Um, I work with individuals and couples. Uh, I'm really interested in working with people who are motivated to do significant change right now, to go deep. 
Um, I use an internal family systems informed model where we make kind of imaginal contact with these different parts of you. And it's all about deepening your ability to be in relationship with yourself in every moment, building tolerance around difficult emotions uh, in ways that allow creativity and vitality to come into these systems that have been kind of trapped. Um, so it's ultimately, you know, it's a, it's a way of liberation in best case scenario. I like to think maybe my own kind of narcissistic, you know, force behind it is, it, it is, it is a kind of path of liberation. That's, that's, Oh, that's the dream I hold for, for my clients. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I was going to point out that you actually have a, uh, what do you call that? A, a motif around how you work. That's not quite the word, but what is that? Uh, a goal or something very specific and an outcome that you reach for. Help me out here. What's the word? Yeah. Your a statement, your purpose, statement a of your purpose. purpose. <laughs> yes. Oh, that a mission. <laughs> your mission statement yeah. for your practice. Yeah. And there you have it, folks. Liam's mission statement yeah. <laughs> for how he approaches the work he does with other his fellow humans. Uh, on planet Earth, I don't know if you deal with aliens. Um, and if you do, that's a different theory for a different episode. Yeah. Please, yeah. you know, I've got a mission statement, and I've even got a motto, which is "We're all in this together." We really are, aren't we? Yeah. 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 All right, that's it for now. I will see. Oh, listeners, remember to support our sponsors by visiting their links and seeing what their fockeries are and sign up for them if they appeal to you. Until we meet again, I say, and Liam says, together we say, bye. Bye.